Momentum HSS, a podcast where we explore the diverse present and future trends of the humanities and social sciences. This is your host, Darby Orcutt. I am a librarian, teaching faculty, and researcher at NC State University, and adjunct faculty at the School of Information and Library Science at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. My guests on this podcast are an amazing array, including associational leaders, funders, and scholars with deep background in the themes we'll be discussing. Please feel free to listen to episodes in any order that makes sense to you. And as you feel moved, I hope you'll reach out via Twitter, at Darby underscore librarian, or more privately via email at dcorcut at ncsu.edu. As always, I hope you'll be as I am, inspired, encouraged, challenged, and changed by what you're about to hear. Thomas Phillips is a composer, novelist, and teacher, known for the minimalist aesthetic that informs his work. In addition to numerous music releases, installations, and collaborations in dance and theater, he is the author of novels, short story collections, and scholarly monographs, recent examples of which focus on literary horror and cultural theory. Having completed graduate work in Helsinki and Montreal, he currently lives in the U.S., where he teaches literature at North Carolina State University. Welcome, Thomas. With the first several episodes of this podcast, I'm having conversations with people of various positions and faculty ranks to try to offer at least a cursory picture of the breadth of the careers and needs of humanists and social scientists within the academy. And you, As a lecturer in the English department of NC State University, full disclosure, my own university as well, you are a part of the more than 70% of college and university instructional staff nationwide who are not tenured or tenure track. This figure is from the AAUP, the American Association of University Professors. So I feel like I should start out by saying thank you for your service. Obviously, higher education wouldn't operate without faculty like you doing so much of the heavy lifting. And stereotypically, teaching faculty positions like yours mean lower pay, higher teaching loads, precarious employment, less say in matters of curriculum and governance. Even if these things were globally true, these positions may also mean much lessened administrative or service burdens, decreased pressures to publish, more control over your research agenda, or even if you wanted to have a research agenda maybe actually getting your summers off. In other words, a lot of positives. What have been the joys for you that your type of appointment has provided? Well, you've you've done you've just done a wonderful job of characterizing those joys. The the time that is is allowed for those of us who choose not to teach in the summer especially means that we have approximately 4 months out of every year to do whatever we want to do. And in my case, that tends to be writing scholarship or we're engaging uh, in creative projects and, and often both. So that that is first and foremost the, the greatest joy. I think too, the fact that I'm not, I, I, I'm not in a position where I have to be on lots of committees and attend all kinds of meetings means that the, the brunt of my work is almost entirely focused on being in the classroom with students. Uh, grading is obviously a big part of, of every semester, but when I think about teaching and the joy of it, the value of it, 
it's really about that time in the classroom. And I'm able to focus on that uh, without being bogged down by lots of administrative duties. And I understand why those exist, but my situation allows me not to have to be too concerned with that. What have been your biggest frustrations with this type of position? To be honest, I don't think too much about the frustrations. I I really genuinely love what I do. But uh, since you asked the question, the the obvious answer is the lower pay and the job insecurity, the the precariousness of it, as as you said earlier. I, I think that for me, there... So something that I think about quite a bit is uh, when I'm in the act of, of it is the, the grading load and the fact that there are so many students and most of, of the kinds of courses that I teach, it actually decreases my ability to grade in the way that I would like. And of course, it, it also has an impact on, on that time in the classroom. It's, it's so much more enjoyable to have more of a, a seminar style experience where you're sitting around a table or um, in, in a small room with desks and, and engaging with students on a more personal level. Those, those are certainly the, the, the less enticing aspects of, of what I do as a non-tenure track teacher. Contingent faculty at NC State have traditionally been referred to as non-tenure track. Although in recent years, at least many are seeking to change that, realizing the problematic nature of defining faculty primarily by what they are not. I know that many contingent faculty often experience unkind presumptions that they would prefer to be on the tenure track or that they somehow settled for their non-tenure track positions. What have been your experiences of others' perceptions of your teaching career? It's hard for me to answer that because I, I don't speak about it with too many people. My general sense of of that in my own department is that those people who know me and have known me for some time are aware of my productivity, particularly in terms of the the scholarship, the scholarly books and so forth. And I get a sense that that awareness may be slightly uncomfortable for some people. But I, I don't really have anything to support that. It's just it's just a sense that I have. And I certainly don't want anyone to be uncomfortable. Uncomfortable in what way? In the sense that I have my, – my CV is such that at this point in my life, I'm 51 years old, I could very easily be tenured given that, that work. And yet – there, there doesn't appear to be much room for moving up the ladder beyond being a, another level of, of lecturer. And I, now when I say all this, I, I certainly don't mean to imply that I have any resentment toward, toward anyone at all. People have actually been very friendly to me. And a number of, of faculty have taken steps to ensure that I get to teach certain classes that I want that sort of thing. So it's, it's nothing that I'm particularly disgruntled about, but I, it is a bit weird that I have the kind of resume that I do and am in the position that, that I'm in. No, it, it, that's certainly the case. And just one glance at your CV, you can see that your scholarly and artistic output rivals that of many late career full professors. You've published several monographs, more than a half dozen novels and story collections, 20-something CDs and recordings, 
And that's not even to mention your art installations, your dance and theater collaborations. It's exhausting just to summarize your work, Thomas. And you talked earlier about having the time in this position. Is that primarily what's afforded you the opportunity to accomplish so much at at this point in your life? Absolutely. Absolutely. And other than just the, the joy of teaching in and of itself, the time that this position affords me is is absolutely priceless. Uh, and that's not to say that I wouldn't be doing what I do in another kind of position with a different schedule, but that four months is an extraordinary gift. And so you know, sometimes when I think about the, the possibility of a tenure track position, I have mixed feelings about it because I have some idea of what it means to be tenure track and, and even tenured. And I, I don't know that I would have the time that I have now. And it's very, very important to me. This is something that's really interesting, though, because I think that your career does, um, and, and the career of, uh, of many who are in your, your type of position, really press upon the idea of what tenured work means and how the academy functions, because here you are having such a rich research dossier in addition to a very heavy teaching load, makes one wonder if there aren't different ways to balance the loads of tenure-track faculty to be able to encourage that sort of productivity. I love that idea. Um, I, I don't really know very much about the, the mechanics of the institution to, to comment much more than that, but certainly some, some degree of balance seems in order. And what I'm hearing from you as well is thinking about the reward system for non-tenure track faculty, that, that that's something that really would be worth putting some more attention to. I think so. Yeah. And and you know, perhaps it, it's something that could be merit-based. I, I don't know. We we do have a lot on our plates. And and for someone in my position, that that essentially means a lot of students and massive amounts of grading. Uh, it's something that I've come to terms with over the years, and it, it doesn't bother me too much, but uh, it's, it's one of the lesser qualities of, of my experience as a lecturer, that's for sure. You know, another thing I've heard from contingent faculty, too, is that sometimes it's hard to feel even aware of all of the supports that there are for you as a teacher, for your students and their positions, uh, even getting connected with things like libraries or some of the, some of the support mechanisms for teaching can be a difficult thing. Has that been your experience? Not particularly. If anything, I feel like we receive a great deal of information about various kinds of support, almost to the point where it becomes a bit lost in in just the the sea of info that comes our way regarding any number of things. And we, we certainly see all of that exacerbated these days by, by COVID and, and all of the changes that are taking place, sometimes day to day, regarding that. No, to answer your question, I, I don't really feel a disconnect between myself and, and whatever support is available to me and, and certainly to students. Are there other sorts of support that you or your students would benefit from? Nothing comes to mind. I suppose I, I can just 
harken back to what I said earlier regarding class sizes. If there was any way to reduce that, it, it would be immeasurably valuable. But of course, I know how difficult that is because it, it ultimately comes down to funding and all kinds of things behind the scenes. Yeah, I think what I was getting at was wondering if there were additional sorts of support that you could receive that would allow you to, other than reduce class size, to allow you to focus your expertise in the sorts of ways that you would like to with your students. Well, this is probably limited in the same way as as smaller classes, but I think having the ability to teach more than just the standard 200 level courses. And, and thankfully, I, I do a bit of that. And that's, that's one of the perks, I think, of my having been in my department for quite a while and, and being relatively successful in what I do. But to be able to teach some upper level courses, uh, that would be extremely helpful. Because as, as NTT faculty, it's rare, extremely rare, to be in a room of students who are all focused on the one thing that we are engaged in. In, in other words, uh, it's rare to be in a room of, of English majors, in, in my case. Uh, it's usually students attempting to fulfill requirements. And that's fine and very interesting in and of itself, but it would be nice to have access to higher level courses. That may be perhaps the norm among lecturers in English departments around the country that they're carrying a heavy teaching load and it's virtually, if not all, uh, freshman composition courses. Yeah, yeah, for for many people. And in fact, that's that's how I started. Before I I did my PhD, I was teaching mostly comp courses. And then when I came back after my PhD, I I did the same with the added benefit of some um, literature courses. And then eventually I was able to just transition over to, to straight literature and also working in the honors program. Uh, so that's certainly been a delight. I know plenty of people who, who have spent their entire careers teaching first-year writing courses. And, and that's, that's great if that's something that you enjoy, but it is often hmm. a limit. In what ways has your scholarship most impacted your teaching, Thomas? There's a lot of crossover, I think, between what I write in terms of scholarship and and what I teach. And that's that too has been one of the great pleasures of my position. But to be a bit more specific, I have spent so much time writing um, some articles, but mostly books, scholarly monographs, that you know I like like so many, have an innate sense at this point of how to construct an argument, um, how to generate a, a thesis and to support that by looking very closely at, uh, in my case, language, uh, the language of literary texts and, and sometimes cinematic texts. I feel it translates in the classroom frequently. It's hard to explain, but sometimes I realize when I'm in the middle of a class that there is a kind of choreography happening, an orchestration. And I, I have this weird ability, <laughs> it surprises me sometimes, to be the choreographer, to be the conductor in that room, uh, which, which means, of course, allowing the voices of students, the ideas of students to, to inform 
what we do, where we go, but always a sense of listening and simply being attentive to what needs to happen in, in a given moment. I feel like I've, I have achieved that, that ability in the classroom in part from a, a life practice of writing. Very nice. Thomas, if it were up to you to restructure our institutions of higher education in order to more effectively impact our society, other than just more funding, what would those institutions look like as designed by you? As designed by me, they would strip a considerable amount of the technology away. And I don't say that to be a Luddite or to to be overly critical of technology and everything that affords us. It's, it's remarkable, of course. But I think that there's an over-reliance on it. And we could probably speak about this for a long time, but I, I think that part of that over-reliance stems from this tendency in the humanities to struggle to remain relevant in this very quickly changing society that we 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 have now and often it just just from what i observe it it doesn't quite do what it's aiming to do there's an awkwardness about it insofar as it it can infantilize the students in a way as opposed to the process of being in a room with students treating them like the the adults or the blossoming adults that they are and really getting into ideas, you know, whether they're ideas of writing or, or ideas that are emerging from a literary text, a philosophical text, what, whatever it might be. You know, technology, as wonderful as it is, it, it has this distancing effect, um, not to mention an effect of acute distraction. And I think that that has a way of negating or compromising this fundamental experience that I'm talking about of humans engaging with other humans with with a certain level of of intellectual rigor and responsibility. I'm sure we could say more about that, but that those are my initial thoughts. Certainly, uh, technology has had and increasingly seems to have more and more impact on the humanities. Where do you see that impact as being perhaps positive? Well, I don't know. I don't know how well I can speak to the the positive qualities of technology's impact on the humanity specifically, but I think just in in everyday life, the connectivity to people is is absolutely positive. In my own work, I can I can tell you that I I have collaborated um, musically and otherwise, but mostly musically, with people over the years whom I have never met. And may never meet, but we've we've had exchanges online and have decided to work together, and we've been able to share files and and actually compose music. You know, th- there must be some element of that 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 informs the humanities at this point. That it's very positive. With the internet, we have access to all kinds of ideas and and developments. So I I think that that those things are are quite positive from a humanities perspective. To flip the lens around for a moment and ask you this, if you had the ability to change one thing about American culture that would impact the arts, humanities, and education, 
what would that be? Well, I, I've spent chunks of my life living in other countries. In Finland and Canada, both of those cultures are quite good about supporting the humanities and supporting the arts. And they do that by offering funding for people who merit that funding. And, but it's beyond money. For example, when, when I was living in Montreal, one of the reasons why I was excited to be there was because there is a, a major music festival that happens in the summer, and it's dedicated to mostly electronic music, but it's also very open to avant-garde forms of, of music and art. It's, it's truly remarkable to be there, to be part of that, and to see the degree to which the city supports it. You know, there, there are banners along all the, the, the major streets, kind of in the way that you might see university banners here. I, I, on, before I lived there, I'd never seen anything quite like that. And yet, to, to address your question, I, I don't know how to bring that into this culture, because we, we don't have a particularly good track record with supporting the humanities or the arts if they have anything remotely marginal about them. That is something that I think needs to be done. That there needs to be some kind of shift in how we embrace scholarly and artistic forms and ideas that may not be connected to popular culture or to the possibility of generating stacks of money. And so, you know, the, you can see where this gets into a discussion of aspects of our culture that, that are just so deeply entrenched in terms of pragmatism, certain prejudices against things that are not overtly attached to fame and wealth, to, to put it bluntly. Now, if I'm not mistaken, uh, you have had the experience of being an artist-in-residence uh, sponsored by the North Carolina Arts Council, correct? Yes, yes. So you have at least had some experience of this you know, within yes, the U.S. Yeah, yeah. That, that's that's one of the things that this culture did right. <laughs> it gave <laughs> gave me um, it gave me a residency. So uh, you know, of course, I'm I'm not suggesting wholesale that we we just don't get anything right. But when when compared to previous experiences in, in other cultures, on the whole, I, I think. We, we just don't value these things as much as others do. And so some kind of cultural shift there is certainly something that, that I would attempt to foster. And, and I guess I do, in a way, in, in the classroom. And, and not, not in some kind of proselytizing way, but, but just standing up for texts of, of different varieties and their immense value to to us, uh, both individually and, and collectively. A particular text that you teach that comes to mind is particularly emblematic of that? Well, there, there's so many. I teach a, a general ed course called Studies in Fiction. I, I cover things that are vaguely familiar to them and and don't necessarily challenge students in terms of style or, or or form, but I also teach texts that do exactly those two things. So something like Don DeLillo's novel, The Body Artist, 
has a certain level of abstraction to it. And, and therefore, it, it generates all kinds of interesting discussion, whether or not the students like it or not. It, it, it's, it's about a process of engaging with something that is unfamiliar and yet kind of uncanny. Beyond that, I would say that the, the horror seminar that I teach in the honors program, which focuses on fiction and film, that course and those texts are, are inherently confrontational. And, and provocative in that at least the way that I read and view them and teach them, their goal is to antagonize us as readers or viewers and to come to terms with, with certain realities that are inescapable in, in some ways. And so our, our job as readers or viewers is to, to meet those texts where they are and, and to actually reflect beyond just the entertainment factor on what it means to be a human being who is destined for the grave. What do we do with that? Does, does that have any kind of impact on, on how we inhabit our lives, our bodies, time? So that, that would be my, my response to that question. Looking ahead in time, where do you see yourself down the road? 10 years, 15 years, what do, you, what, what do you want to be doing or what do you want to have done at that point? Well, in terms of my personal fulfillment, I think like a lot of people, I would love to earn my living through creative work. That's, that's a, a difficult thing to achieve. And it's, it's even a difficult thing to visualize because it, it seems so so distant. You know, there's so few people, relatively speaking, who have that luxury. And it's especially odd for someone such as myself, whose creative work is fairly marginal. It, it's not really intended for masses and masses of people. So that's, that's certainly a, a dream. But beyond that, I would be very happy to continue teaching. I would like more stability, particularly the older that I get. Certainly, I would be happy with, with a larger paycheck. But to be honest, Arby, I, I love where I am right now. Uh, and that doesn't mean that I don't have a desire for advancing beyond this, this position. But um, things have been good, and they continue to be. Uh, if anything, I'd like to live in a city that's a bit more metropolitan and has more, more options available, a bit more diversity in its populace in terms of of having a connection with the humanities and, and the arts. But we'll see. That's always a possibility. Thomas, thank you so much. It's been a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate your, your sharing about your experiences. It's my pleasure. Anytime. Thank you for joining us for this episode. I'm your host, Darby Orcutt. Be sure to subscribe to Momentum HSS on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may listen to your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, please rate, review, and share it with a friend. And until next time, keep up the momentum. Momentum